final of the women's 10,000 metres. A huge lineup and a huge opportunity for all these women. That was Alexei Papas of Greece just taking her place. Whether you're like, look, I'm running this race, and if I'm not injured, I'm going to keep putting my foot in front of the other, or I have this goal, and I'm going to be on my own team and commit for this period of time. This then is the start of the women's 10,000 meters. The movie stars our first guest, Olympian, Alexi Pappas. Please join me in welcoming Alexi Pappas. Your actions change first, then your thoughts, then your feelings in that order only. And so toughness is the ability to, to give more credit and more attention to the actions than the feelings. So why is it that the beast so damn the most life-changing thing was accepting my brain as a body part because when I see my brain as a body part, everything makes sense. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Patty Steinfurt, your host, and today we have Alexi Pappas with us, who is an achiever and overachiever in so many areas, an Olympian who has also co-written and starred in multiple feature films, the latest of which is Tracktown, also a best-selling author of the book Bravey. Welcome to the show, Alexi. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Alexi could potentially be the most ideal guest for this show because of some of the stories and experiences you're going to hear in the rest of this chat. We'll start with a fun fact, though. A fun fact that I have here is that did you know that the word dream is found 117 times in your book? Did you know that fact? Oh, wow. 117? 117. That's yep. So many times because it's not, I mean, it's a pretty long book, but that means it's like on one third of the pages. <laughs> That's so, <laughs> so nice there you to go. research. Wow. Well, and I think it's a good place to start because yeah. going to the Olympics is a dream for so many people. It's Some of us can't even imagine it. It's literally just like, oh, that'd be cool, but we're not even close to being athletically gifted enough. For you, though, the dream, as I understand it, it wasn't like something you were dreaming about when you were five. It kind of came to you late, right? Like, how do you end up representing your country at the Olympics in Rio? Yeah, so, I mean, sports were always, I think, a way for my dad and I to communicate with each other. And after my mom passed away, I lost her to suicide when, or by suicide, I think is the right way to say it, when I was four, my dad, I think, found that sports were the best way to teach me how to like fall down and get back up. And I also loved sports. And so I was brought by him to the Olympics in 1996. I was six years old. And I think at that moment, I really was like, this would be so incredible and cool. But of course, the Barbie that I brought home was the gymnastics Barbie. And I didn't end up being a gymnast. <laughs> But I loved sports. And I think what I loved about them was the sense of putting in work and getting something back and having some sort of control. And I loved teams. But I would say that the Olympic dream didn't seem possible to me until after college, mostly because I simply wasn't good enough, I think, to like entertain such a dream as a real thing. It was more like a reverence to the Olympics and admiration, a love for it. And it wasn't until after college that I loved running enough and that I was, you know, in a position to, to dream about making it to the Olympics. And, and prior to that, again, I found running a little bit later than some people. And I also had this 
curiosity for the arts and for acting, which is a kind of performance just like running. And so I think I am a performer. That is what I enjoy most. Is that a normal, like you said, you came to running a little late, but you're a distance runner, so you've competed in a 10,000-metre race. And often endurance events, things that, you know, you need to build up some conditioning for, right? Was that, is that a normal age at 26 to find yourself getting really good? Yeah. Well, so with running, I would say it is almost a blessing in disguise if you happen to not overtrain when you're in high school. And it's a hard balance to have because if you are in a healthy environment and you love your sport, which I didn't love running in high school. And I was in an environment where coaches wanted me to quit every other sport and just run. And so I I actually ended up not running junior and senior year of high school to play soccer and other sports. So I would say it's not common to not run all through high school and make it to the Olympics, but it is common to peak in running somewhere in the age 26 to 33 age. So it's a sport where you peak a little bit later in life than like a gymnastics, for example. And I think that's because the female athletic body is more capable in distance running and running in general than the child body. And I think what was not common about my path was having the time away from the sport that I did. Mm. But I think I have that to think for making it as far as I did because my body was really developed and healthy and durable to handle the training that I put in between age 21 and 26, which was over hundred miles a week, every single week. Which is crazy for those of us who struggle to get two miles in every other day, just to keep the legs ticking over. I would argue as well that it was probably to thank for some of the other pursuits that you've reached fairly high levels in. Like not many of us could say that we've written and starred in feature films, let alone multiple not many of us can say we've got a book deal and we've put out an amazing story, which we will get more into. Was that like your space later in high school and in college that you were able to explore that more because you weren't as serious about your running at that point? For sure. So my freshman year at Dartmouth, I was like on the cross country team, but I wasn't good enough to compete. And so I was left home on campus when everybody went to the races and I was I got all these emails about this improv group audition and I didn't, I had never done improv comedy, but I did like performing. And so I went out of curiosity and I got into this group that years prior, Mindy Kaling and Rachel Dratch and a lot of really great creative people were a part of. And I think that those two pursuits really balanced each other out because I mean, they were both like crafts that I wanted to get better at and everybody in the worlds that I was in wanted to be better, but they also were so refreshing to one another, you know, like you, you stay very grounded and down to earth in a comedy improv environment. And I also would have probably never met my husband, who's my creative partner, if I hadn't been out at a party one night instead of at a race my freshman year. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a very cool story. So there's a lot to thank for then, but it, uh, that it yeah. came slowly and developed slowly. So you made it to Rio. You set a national record. So you're, you're a Greek-American. Is that the right way to say Greek-American. that? Greek-American. Yep, exactly. You're perfect. Right. And so you, you represented Greece at the Olympic Games. Is that true? Yes. Cool. Which, because of the nature of the Olympic Games, I imagine that's even more because it's like it started in Greece, right? Like. 
the Olympic Games were originally the Greek Games. So a cool little circle back moment there. And as you represent them, you set a national record in the 10,000 metres. So this is like speaking of dreams 117 times in your book, every third page, you have like peaked. You're 26, you're representing your country, you've set a national record, you've achieved the dream of dream of dreams. And then things start to turn a little bit, right? And this is where your story, not that it's not interesting up to that point, that's incredibly interesting already, but that's almost scene one or act one of the hero's journey and all of a sudden things start to go into darker places for you without playing too much on the words. Going from a dream to a nightmare in some ways is what happened for you next. Can you share what that experience was like? Yes. So taking a step back from the Olympics, I think that my understanding of mental health, my understanding of what had happened to my mom was really limited and challenging because when she died by suicide, I thought, you know, the narrative that I was told was that she was just so sick that she had to go and she was unhelpable. And what that meant to me as a child was that, well, I better not ever be anything like her because I don't want to be unhelpable and I don't want to have to go. And so I spent so much of my life chasing these outward facing accomplishments to simply tick the boxes for myself that I was successful and happy and okay, because I didn't want to die. And I didn't understand how someone could go from being okay to not being, to being not okay and to being not okay in a way that was unsolvable, which is just my understanding of her situation based on the narrative that I've heard and the narrative that I crafted. And so when I got to the Olympics, which is a peak that nobody prepares, I think for the moment after, because if you did, you might not get there in the first place. Mm. I panicked a little bit because I wanted to know, well, first of all, I think I thought that I would feel this thing that you expect to feel at a peak where you feel complete and you do, you feel incredible. It's a dream come true, but you can never solve an internal problem with an external solution. So there always will be, if you're chasing, you know, running away from a trauma or whatever it was that I was doing, there's always going to be that feeling of like incompletion because it's not a really viable solution. And when I was done with the Olympics, I felt like I was at this cliff and needed to know what was next. And I needed to know yesterday and I didn't know. And there was a series of changes that I made in my life in the course of a month from moving to changing coaches, to changing events up to the marathon, to I experienced, I was going through sponsor negotiations. There was a lot of stress and it felt like a little cliff, like a big cliff really. And I didn't navigate it very well because any feelings of anxiety that I was having, which were tremendous, I pushed away because I associated those as indications that I was behaving like my mother or being like her, which I didn't want to be. And so I kind of rejected any kind of post-Olympic depression as a possibility for me and therefore made it even worse. And it wasn't until my dad, months into this episode, saw through the phone, really, that I was not okay and made me get help, that I got help and understood that I was sick or I was mentally injured and that my doctor was like, it's just like a physical injury where 
you can fall down and scrape your knee and, and your brain can have a scrape on it too. And it can heal, but it's going to take a long time. And that was really the epiphanal moment in my life where I realized that it was an injury and that I could be okay again. But I didn't grow up understanding that these injuries were injuries. And I didn't understand that if they ever happened, that I would be okay. It's an amount. So firstly, appreciate you sharing that story and that part of your journey. It's only one part. It's obviously a very significant part of it, but it's powerful. And for some reasons, we'll get back to it towards the latter part of the show as well, in particular about what it means when people like yourself share that story. But I'm curious, as you mentioned there, I hadn't heard this before, but your dad picked it up on a phone call. Tell me about that phone call. Like, what is he hearing from you or not hearing that makes him alarm bells go off? Yeah. What a good question because it was several phone calls. You know, I'm close with my dad and he was hearing things that indicated that I thought that my life was ruined. So I thought I knew my future. And I think that's an indication that we're not healthy because you can never know your future. And I was sure of it. I was sure that it was never going to be good and that I wanted to go back in time. Wait a second, time out, time out. You just went to the Olympics and set a national record. How are you coming off the back of that saying my future's screwed? See, this is the problem though, because I was not well. And I think that the world sees you as someone who cannot have thoughts like this. So you feel like you can't have thoughts like this. And the truth was that I was not well. And so whatever thoughts mm. I was having, those weren't me. They were just my thoughts. And, and were you scared to say them out loud because the world thought a certain way of you? I certainly didn't tell anybody but my dad. And yeah. because it was shameful, like you are a superhero and you have no reason to complain. So if mm. anything is wrong, it seems like a spoiled thing to think. But your thoughts, you are not your thoughts, but you can have thoughts. And I had those thoughts. I had thoughts of wanting to go back in time and just recreate a life that I already had. I had thoughts eventually of like, you know, suicidal thoughts. And I think I eventually admitted some of those to him. And he saw what had happened to my mom. And he told me, we're not going to lose this time. And that was a really heartbreaking thing to hear from him because I know what he went through, you know, and I know I didn't want to hurt him like that, but I obviously needed his help. Mm. I hear those words and I, I get a little welled up. I lost a relative, my godmother, to suicide when I was an athlete, not at the age of four, but I know what it can do to a family. And I hear you say that and I wonder whether your dad was like sneaky good with the way he framed that because you were a competitive athlete. And when he framed it as winning versus losing in the battle against mental health, that might have like set you up to actually want to compete again and not lose. Do you think any of that played in that? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, I certainly think that my dad was the type of person that very rarely made me do anything. So when he said something, it resonated. And so it was more that he wouldn't have intruded or, or made me do anything unless it was very important. And I do think turning it into a bit of an athletic thing was smart on his part. It was smart on my doctor's part to be like, this is an injury. Let's begin the process. It's going to hurt every day for a long time, just like a broken bone. This is just going to feel like sadness. And it was just, I think, creating those metaphors or those ways for you to visualize yourself as something that you could 
wrap your head around. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My dad was really good about it. I mean, look, I scared him, right? Like, it's scary for him to hear these things. And he always answered the phone. And I think that was really important because I clearly didn't want to want to die. I just wanted to die. Like, it was just the thoughts of wanting to die, but I didn't want to have those thoughts. And I think when I called him, it was like when I had those thoughts and he knew I didn't want to have those thoughts. And I think he had a really deft hand of someone who wasn't, he, he just, I don't even know how he knows how to behave the way that he does as a parent, but he definitely, you know, saved my life. Well, it's an amazing credit to him. And we talk a lot in this show with other guests about heroes along the journey. And there's one for you immediately, obviously, you've already mentioned him. And one of the skills that he had and that your psychiatrist, I think you said, your doctor had, was being able to make this kind of tangible or putting it in a frame that, like, made sense to you. I can attack this, we can win. Or it's a physical injury, I can hear. Like, it gives you, a, like you said, something to grab onto. And often we'll use kind of a metaphor or something similar to answer this question. I ask this of all my guests. What's toughness mean to you? In your experience, both as one of the world's greatest athletes, being able to go to the Olympics and set national records, as someone who has, you know, it's not easy to write a book, to get through a project of that size, to film a, a movie, to even just to do improv comedy sometimes, right? These are all tough things in their own way. How would you define, and obviously you've been through an incredibly tough personal experience, how would you define toughness, taking all that into account? I think toughness is the ability to hang in there during a period of time that you've committed to a goal, as long as there's no bad pain going on or, or injury, like it's being able to kind of be in an incubator for a period of time that you've committed to. So whether you're like, look, I'm running this race and if I'm not injured, I'm going to keep putting my foot in front of the other or I have this goal and I'm going to be on my own team and commit for this period of time. I think toughness is like committing to a process and also, you know, all the while having the bird's eye view of being able to pull yourself out if some red flag comes up. But barring mm -hmm. if there's no red flags, toughness is your ability to be in there when you need to be in there. And I think toughness requires composure. So it's not like this, like out of control toughness. Toughness isn't like a feral animal. I think toughness is composure. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. The most life-changing thing was accepting my brain as a body part, because when I see my brain as a body part, everything makes sense. So damn proud. That mention of composure is probably specific to like in-race events and when they say action as you're acting. But are you referring to other things as well, like at periods of time during your mental health or your mental injury? Did you feel like composure was important to you during that as well? Yeah, I felt like it was important 
to accept certain things as truths, like that I wasn't going to feel better for a really long time to have the ability to wake up every day and not be surprised by my pain anymore, but focus on my actions. So probably toughness is also the ability to, to suspend your feelings in moments and just focus on your actions because your feelings, at least the way that I see it and the way I was told your actions change first, then your thoughts, then your feelings in that order only. And so probably toughness is the ability to, to give more credit and more attention to the actions than the feelings. Yeah. And accept that the feelings will change because of the actions. Love that. That's a really cool way. I think you kind of hinted at it before when you were saying, you know, if there's a red flag, clearly you pull yourself out. If you've got incredible pain that's getting worse, that's not something that we want to encourage people to push through, but almost accepting not the red flags, but the orange flags. This is kind of uncomfortable. This is something I'm going to have to push through. And the fact that it rings true, I remember we had Apollo Ono on the show a while back and he talked about the fact that he only got really good when he started to accept and embrace a certain type of pain because that was where he got his power from that made him push a little harder in certain races, et cetera. Obviously, significant pain, particularly whether it's physical or mental and emotional, is not something we want to encourage people to go out of their way and find or to put up with for too long. But I think that red flag, orange flag is a nice little... I'm going to play off your metaphor and add that in there. Now, the cool thing, this is why I mentioned at the start of the show that you are possibly the best guest we can ever have, is because you've lived at this amazing level of performance. Not only have you done it athletically, you've done it in the arts as well. And at the same time, so you not only understand the mental requirements of performing at that level, at the same time you've been through, one of the other driving factors of this show is to help people deal with mental stress, pressure, things that could lead people down the wrong path or towards more pain. But if handled properly and, more importantly, if they seek the right support like your dad got you to do, then we can still have great lives and get through some tough stuff as well. You, having gone through what you've been through, turned into and are one of the more outspoken mental health advocates in sport. And it's a really cool passion that I applaud you for and it's been cool looking at some of your stuff how did that come to be like how did you decide not just because there are plenty of people who go through it and this is a great point I heard you make I think in a different interview where you said it's not just about saying this is the thing in sport like yeah no shit like it's a thing in society people have this thing but you didn't just have it and then get back to work you had it and it changed your focus like you're passionate about speaking out about this and educating Why that step for you? Yeah, well, I think it's just shocking to me how uneducated and how unprepared I was for facing what I experienced based on my family history. It's like I should have been a kind of red flag candidate for what I went through. And that I was so unprepared means that anyone could be unprepared, I think. And I think once I realized how simple the vocabulary shifts were, but how profound I felt like it was really important to share whatever I could because those vocabulary shifts of seeing my brain as a body part of thinking about my actions first and and various other things were so epiphanal that I needed to share those things. And also I had an awareness that I have seen the very worst 
things I think a person might see someone do to themselves and what I've seen my mom do. And I felt the very, like I was the highest risk depression you can be. So if anybody falls somewhere in between that, I feel that I can uniquely speak to them. And I remember, you know, when you asked at the beginning of this interview, why, when did you commit to the Olympic dream? It was when my Olympic coach or it was my college coach who was an Olympian told me, this is a dream you could take seriously. I think you should do it. That's when I was like, oh, wow. Hearing that from my dad doesn't mean as much as hearing it from this guy. And so I'm also aware from my perspective that hearing certain things from certain people is more impactful than hearing the same thing from somebody else. And Mm. I think that I'm in a position to speak to certain people and I will do it because I can. And if it speaks to even one person that can save someone's life. And I do think that even though most of what I put out on social media has this, like, I think a sweetness to it, there's a melancholy and like a, a sharpness to it that if you understand where I came from, you see, and I think it's important at some point to share where that comes from. And for me, that felt most appropriate in a book where you can kind of tell that whole story. And I love words and I love writing and I'm good at communicating. So I felt that this was a natural thing to find myself doing. And I also have found that I have something to say about it. Like some people are like, well, we don't know what to do. And I'm like, I know what to do. I know what it would have been nice for someone to do for me. I know what would have been nice to hear. I know what would have been not nice to hear. And so it's also just the idea that whenever there's been a question about it, it's been so obvious to me now that I've been through this whole thing, what I could say about it, that I'm saying it now. Yeah, that's, I mean, wow, it's so much to grab out of that. Firstly, I did, I was lucky enough to read a few of your, what you've shared on Instagram. There was a poem there that I'm actually furiously scrolling through your feed right now to try and find it so I can share it. Mm. If I can't find it, I will record it afterwards and share it with others because it really was inspiring. Secondly, I'm curious, I believe you're right. There was multiple things you said in there that, really resonated with me partly because that's why I have ended up hosting this show for similar reasons but in particular there were two things you said that I think are almost word for word on what I put on the initial note or invite when we're getting guests on the show one of which is if you coming on here helps just one person it's worth it so it was really cool to hear you say that the second thing is that I do firmly believe and there's good evidence to show that hearing the message from the right person changes how you engage with it changes how likely you are to act on it, all that sort of stuff. With what you described there as your coach being the person who helped you actually be like, yeah, I'm going to do this Olympic thing. Do you think the right person, and I'm doing air quotes for those who can't see, do you think the right person is referring to someone who's been super successful and I want to be like them, or is it someone who has been through what they're talking about? Because if we're talking about being Olympian, cool. I want to hear from someone who's been Olympian and has yeah. had success. But if we're talking about mental health, do I want to hear from an NBA player or do I want to hear from someone who had suicidal thoughts and got through it? What do you think? Well, I think you want to hear from somebody who is a step beyond where you are, whatever that is. It could be an emotional step beyond. It could be a, a career step beyond. I think you just want to hear it from someone who's been there and and also someone who maybe someone who it surprises you from because 
when I, this is not related exactly to the mental health thing, but when I decided to pursue the Olympics, it was actually at the end of college, I had the opportunity to go to really great writing programs. And I was going to do that and just like be a writer. And it was my creative writing advisor who encouraged me to pursue the Olympics because she was like, you'll always be able to write. Your body is right now. So sometimes you hear it from a surprising source. Like it wouldn't have meant as much to me from my Olympic coach to hear actually pause on your creative stuff for a few moments to chase that Olympic dream. So I can't say exactly. I just know that you know it when you feel it. And you also know, I think, when you're in that position to maybe be that person for someone. And it's okay if you're not. I think that's why everybody matters in this world, because you might be speaking to someone, you might not speak to everyone, but that's okay, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you speak to one, then that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that it did speak to people. I think that something that you begin to, I think mentorship is it's kind of a two-way street, right? Like you give mentorship, but you also can draw it out of people and it's an ongoing relationship. So I've just tried to stay engaged with people and try to feel what has spoken to them. And I think when you write like a memoir, it's not a journal. So I'm writing it with the hopes that people will connect with it. And so it's, it is a goal. It is a goal. It's important to me because I would have loved to have that from somebody when I was younger. Yeah. You mentioned two things there. One was the mentorship and the fact that obviously you think it's important. You've mentioned already three or four people who had a big hand in number one, helping you go to the Olympics. Number two, mm-hmm. helping you go to the Olympics. Number three, tackling a big life event. Number four, these creative projects. It's cool and all. And I think this is, for me, one of the coolest things about what you share is not, not I mean, that's crazy to say that after we've already heard everything you've said. It's amazing that you share this story and you're so authentic with it, but that you actually talk about things that people can do, not just like like the Instagram quotes that are like, hey, you know, tough it out or ignore the haters. We had Ronnie Chang on here one time and he he made the joke that I love that ignore the haters is a fucking Instagram quote. It doesn't, it's not useful to anyone. How do you do that? It doesn't do anything, yeah. And so you talk a lot about, action which we'll get into in a second specific to mental health but let's talk about when you say find a mentor like how the fuck do you go do that i think it's you draw it out of people like i think the word itself feels really passive but i always when i was little knew that i needed it because i was like i don't have a mom i need to like find help so i would always try to get it out of people and i think that it seems like something that you're just given, but I never expected to be given it. I expected I would have to go out and get it. And then the fun part was realizing that you never have to outgrow wanting that and that muscle that draws it out of people. And the way you draw it out of people is simply being interested in them and being grateful to be around someone and then not being afraid to ask questions. And people can always say no. I've approached people who just simply don't have time to mentor me or help me. And that's fine. Who cares? Someone just says no. But if I never ask, I'm not going to know. Maybe they would say yes. And so I think it's kind of a a muscle you develop. Yeah. 
Do you talk a lot about this? It's a good metaphor because you've talked about it from both the mental injury standpoint, but the, the developing the muscle of asking questions, even if it feels a little scary. You also had a really cool acronym. I'm not sure if you remember it off the top of your head. So yeah. it was basically like the, the first one is the, the brain acronym. B is for a body part. And you've mentioned that a few times. Your brain's a body part and it can get injured just like other things, your muscles, your bones. R is for recover, but just like other physical injuries and mental injuries can get better, but you've got to accept that you don't get better immediately. It takes some time. A is for attention, and that's paying attention to your thoughts and feelings, like if you pay attention to pain or discomfort in the rest of your body. I is for intervention. Like most injuries, the problem starts small, so when you do notice that things start to build up, that you want to act on them. And then N is for normal. That's it's normal for your mind to need maintenance at work, just like it's normal if you want your muscles to work, you have to work. And I thought like what you share is tangible and practical, which is a really, I think, a vital part of this stuff. Because I reiterate again, you said something like it's kind of a waste of our breath by just pointing out that our oh, athletes have mental health injuries too. It's very useful that Naomi Osaka comes out and talks about it. It's very useful that Kevin Love has been so vocal. But just saying you have it is not the same as helping people who have it by saying here's stuff you can do. Yeah. Well, that's because we don't know what to do. Maybe it's like an athletic thing where like we want to be coached, like we want to know what to do. And it's also if you do believe in the like actions change, then thoughts, then feelings, we have to focus on the actions first. Mm. And it just simplifies it and makes it less of like a choice whether or not we're ill or injured or whatever. It's more like, it's more like an injury where like you can't think your way out of an injury. It takes actions and time and that's it. It just simplifies it a little bit because actions are things we can do. Yeah. And and we mentioned before actions in one instance is a physical tangible action of seeking support engaging with a coach or a therapist or even just a family member who can help you. But in times, sometimes particularly with inner struggles, inner issues, inner game, if it's not a mental health thing, it's just trying to perform better, is some of the actions are, are flipping the way you view things or, like you said, changing the vocabulary, which I think is a really cool way to put it. And this is, for me, what I think grabbed me about your poem. I'm going to share it now. It was posted on World Mental Health Day and you write about losing your mum to suicide when you were four had reverberative effects throughout your life. And there's a lot more in your book, Bravey, about that. But this is a poem that you wrote to that effect. Sometimes I feel sad. I want things so bad that it makes me feel sad. Why do I feel sad? Is wanting things bad? Why can't it be rad to want things so bad? I think about ants and how badly they want They try till they die to eat all your pie. But what else could I do? Chase nothing at all? Not want things because I'm too scared to fall? I think it's not sad. I misunderstood why I feel how I feel about my mood. Why fear sad? Because sad is just care. And care is brave. Care is hard. Care is rad. Care is rare. Very cool. Like I'm welling up pretty mad. (laughs) It's such a cool way to share your own reframing of this stuff and changing your vocabulary about that 
feeling sad isn't a bad thing. It means something's important to you. And it means that you care and caring's good. And we just have to be careful about how we overuse that sometimes, right? Or how we let that become the driver of the bus instead of just accepting that I'm going to go on this run and sadness is going to come with me for a little bit. And so I just wanted to share that with you firstly, personally, as a thank you, but also with the listeners. If you are interested, Alexi's shares openly on Instagram, but the, the book itself has many more, I'll say, narratives or notions like this that are worth digging into. What's the biggest vocabulary flip for you, Alexi, that you like either was the easiest and the most powerful or it actually was really hard to do, but once you managed to do it, it's made a huge difference for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's very surreal to hear you read the poem like it was a real thing in the world. I mean, it is, but it's really, you know, I only hear them in my voice. So to hear it in yours was like a really like, I'm very grateful for that experience. I don't know. That made me tear up because it made me feel like something that I thought was like worthy of someone else saying it. So that was really nice. Um, And I think that to be honest, like the most life-changing thing was accepting my brain as a body part, because when I see my brain as a body part, everything makes sense where you know, a little rough feeling one day isn't an indication that I like need to turn myself into a hospital or see a doctor. Just like if my leg feels a little sore one day, it's like, all right, maybe it's a day off or like, it's, you know, you, you know what to do about it. And if it progresses, you know, it's like, it just made me completely take care of my mental health the way I would my physical health. And I've been trained for my entire life to take care of my body And so for me, that was so epiphanal because I already knew how to do it. I just didn't realize it was the same thing. So I would say that that has been the number one vocabulary switch that I wish that people knew before. (laughs) I hope people know that if it helps them before they need to know that. So yeah, that truthfully was the number one. Number one. It's number one on that list that I read before, and it, and it is very catchy and easy to remember. Yeah. Brain is a body part. One of the things that is common to this show, I steal this question from John Gordon, who's a great author, inspirational speaker, but he has an exercise that he ran with sports teams, and I was lucky enough to be around one time when he spoke, and it's the four H's. I think it was originally three, it became the four. You've already covered two of them by sharing what you've shared so far. Your hardship and also hero or multiple heroes along your journey. There are two others that he gets to, which is highlight and hope. We'll get to the hope as the last way way to tie it up. But can you share a highlight of like, this is a, for some people, they hear what you're sharing about the story and they're like, oh, I don't ever want to feel that. Like I'm happy to just stay in the middle. I just want to have a bland life with not too many ups and downs, you know, but for you, you've gone to the highest highs, Mount Olympus. You've gone to the lowest lows, suicidal thoughts. What for you after you've recovered from your mental injury? So I would say the highlight for me, I think releasing the book was a highlight, but I, I honestly feel that a recent highlight that I've had was we just shot a movie and I felt for the first time in my life, the feeling of teammateship that I felt in sports on a film set where 
everybody was so committed to this one goal. And it was so, so much like the feeling of like people dying on the soccer field for each other that I loved so much growing up. It was like, and I never knew that that was possible in the arts. And I remember I have a mentor in Richard Linklater, the filmmaker who was a really, really competitive baseball player. And he had to stop for health conditions and he became a filmmaker. And I remember he told me like, you can have this in the arts. And I had never, I hadn't quite felt it until we shot this movie. This was about a month and a half ago. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is teamwork in a creative world. And it was such a joy because I hoped that that could exist, but it's something that I hadn't yet experienced. And it's my favorite part about sports. And now it's my favorite part about creative stuff in life, really. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... I found way more joy in admitting what I like really want and being really, really honest about it. So damn proud. That's a really cool discovery. I want to say congratulations to you. I know that probably not that one, but I have a similar experience. I have a mentor myself who is a trained therapist, and probably when I talk to him, it's part therapy as well, I imagine. But I talked to him about my discovery of I got in flow while I was coaching someone, right? And it actually had happened multiple, multiple times within the space of a month. And I'm like, it's the weirdest thing. I feel like I used to feel when I was in the zone while I was playing. Wow. And he's like, yeah. Tell me more. So is it like you were just so focused with the person or you just felt like you knew what to say or what, what was it? I don't know. Like I can only relate it to like when you're in a competitive environment, So I played professional football, you're racing, right? And you're in that moment and there's not any anxiety or you're not, your mind isn't running trying to fix things or like solve problems. It's just like, I was almost just grateful to be sitting there and having someone share a very important problem Mm -hmm. and and feeling grateful to be the person they're doing that with. Mm -hmm. But also just doing the dance of like, I don't, I'm not predetermined with where this session goes. I don't want to run this thing with you. I, I don't want to say this to you. I'm just... You tell me where you're at and then let's explore that. And it was just like this really magic, like I keep, it's for people who can't see, which is everyone if you're listening. I keep like crafting this. It was almost like there was this magic space between the two people in the room mm-hmm. and I was happy enough to sit in it. I don't, it's really hard to explain. But I think for people who have been in the arts, in competitive sports, for people who have dropped into the zone, surfing, you get in the right wave, making love to the person that you love. Like there are moments where it's just like everything else disappears and you just feel so cool to be in it and it almost slows yeah, down. Yeah. You don't belong anywhere else. Yeah, you're just exactly where you are. Right. Um, yeah. That's Is that what it was like for you on that set? It was. And it, it almost felt like a different planet because we were shooting it actually at the summer camp in Big Bear. So we were like on a closed summer camp set and it was like we were on a different it was like a little bit of its own world. And I just felt, I don't know, I felt so unselfconsciously able to do, to express, I don't know, because I was directing and acting. So it was a lot. It was constant. And 
I just looked around and I felt that everybody believed in what everybody was doing and everybody was going to give their best of what they were doing. And it was a lean set because of COVID. So we didn't have extra people hanging around. So everybody was there was meant to be doing something Mm -hmm. and they were doing that something with a very, very full heart, open heart, full commitment. They wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world. And you could feel that. And that makes everybody better. Yeah, that's there's a purity to it. I, I've had a couple of players and coaches mention this. Whilst it's been obviously a tragedy for many people in the world, and it has significantly changed the way we do business in many ways. Some of the uh, lean set in a in a locker room that, that that has gone into effect as well, and right, it's changed the dynamic. Right. There's not as many hangers on. There's not as many people even in the crowd. You don't need it. You like really yeah. don't need all that noise. <laughs> Yeah. And do you think, was it uh, without giving away too much of the actual nature of the film or the plot, was there something to do with the storyline that it's like there's a commitment to a greater cause? Besides oh, just creating sure. a cool work of art, is there something in it? There's been a Deadline article about it. It is out there in the world. Okay. All right. About, the movie exists. So it is about artists. So it's actually inspired by the last chapter of my book, which is about the difference between interest and commitment in a dream and it's about an artist in residency it's a fictitious artist in residency that high potential artists who have yet to fulfill their potential yet go for a month and they get one month to create their project and win a hundred thousand dollars or they sign a contract where they will quit the arts forever which obviously doesn't exist but i found in my life that there was a moment where I was like, I'm doing this no matter what. And I feel that it doesn't really exist. Like you could pretend to be chasing whatever dream forever, maybe unless it's like the NFL or the NBA where it's like, no, you like are not on the team, but you know, you could pretend to be chasing any kind of dream or kind of half do it. But in this world, you can't, you have to sign a contract and the, Abbott, which is like the person who puts it on, is played by the Riza, who's the founder of the Wu Tang. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's incredible. And like, anyway, it's definitely the best movie I've ever made. And I feel that it encapsulates this kind of, I guess, that toughness that you and I talked about about like, get in there and do what you came to do here for a month, or you'll never do it again. And it's go all in or get out. Yeah, and it's a comedy, but it's also like I think some people are going to leave the theater and be like, have a very sobering moment about their own life. And I'm not here to protect any egos. So it's very cool. <laughs> I, I know that I, I occasionally will have a chat with like there's an athlete or a performer in a different field who's complaining about this, that, or the other, or the coach screwed me, or my agent's not doing yeah. the job. It's like, well, cool. I can make all that go away. We can just quit. Just never come back. Right. You just, just don't play anymore. And they kind of laugh like, oh, well, that's stupid. It's like, well, if, if you're not going to quit, then let's do it properly. Exactly. Right? Oh, I love that. I love that you tell people that because that's really the like, yeah, it's like the shit or get off the pot moment of like, yes. And what are we going to do? You know? Yeah, exactly. So let's use that last chapter as a metaphor. We're going to start to wrap the interview up here. This has been awesome. Just as I predicted, the best person I have on the show. We'll finish with what your hope is. So you've obviously shared a lot about where this movement generated for you. You're a creator who has so many different channels to express this message. What do you hope for next? Well, actually, sorry, 
What's yeah. the name of the film that you just mentioned? I'm super it's called curious. Not an Artist. Okay, Not an Artist. All right. So sounds like I've got to put that on my list. If you're listening, you clearly have to go and watch it. But beyond Not an Artist, what's your hope now? From where you are now, you've had a great story and you're only 31. It's crazy. What's yeah. next? Well, I had an epiphany the other day, which is that, so I think the greatest joy in my life used to be thinking about these big peak moments and like visualizing them and wanting them. And I still like to visualize those moments, but I realized recently that I found way more joy in admitting what I like really want and being really, really honest about it. Even if it's like a thing that the world doesn't see for me, I see it. And then chasing it with like my entire heart, like a, little child chasing the ice cream truck. And I think I learned that lesson from writing this book, Bravey, because I know that it was not exactly what people expected of me. People, I think, expected like a saccharine, inspirational, sweet little thing. And it's more like a kind knife. Like it's great. Mm -hmm. but it, it has some gore and sex and, you know, it, it is a little bit, there's a knife quality to it but the world was fine with it. So what I learned was that it's up to me to grow myself up and evolve and decide what I want and chase it. And I can't control whether the world will be okay with it or not, but chances are they will and they'll be fine and everyone will be fine. And I also just can't control it. And so I think my hope is that I continue to every day remind myself to just keep that as the goal is like, being honest with what I want and then going, trying the very best I can and not thinking about the result at all because I cannot control it. And I think it's a slight shift from being really goal oriented, but it's felt really good so far. And I feel a lot happier. My average is much happier now. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. I'm not as fixated on the peaks and I know the peaks will come but I, most of my life is in the journey and I need that to be more fun. It should be more fun. That's it. That's very cool. It's a nice process goal as opposed to an outcome goal, right? It's, yeah. But it's a did really I catch that right? Thing. Yeah, but it's a very hard thing to tell someone because I've been told a million times, like, it's the journey and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, you know? So I don't know. And I'm still finding the words to convince people that this is the truth. And that it is the best way. And I think I'm writing a young reader's version of Bravey and I'm going to make it a totally different book because I don't believe in just like watering down something for a 12-year-old. I want to write a different book. And I think that's one of the things I want to tackle is putting that into words that feel like they would have resonated with me growing up, which I was mm. a tough, that would have been a very hard thing to convince me of before. 12-year-old Alexi, is that who you're writing to now? It's a tough one. Oh, all right. Well, good <laughs> luck with that. <laughs> I know. I, I got to be honest, Alexi. It sounds like 31-year-old Alexi's a, a tough one as well. It's an amazing I'm journey. I'm having more fun, though. I think <laughs> that's it. I think that's what's going to be the chapters. I'm going to be like, it will be more fun, and you will probably get to your goal more likely, right? Yeah, absolutely. Who doesn't want to have fun? Well, ex exactly. I mean, it, sometimes when people are, like, stuck in the, the shitty parts of life, like you're either having a mental health episode or you just had a bad day at work or you got kicked out of the playoffs before you wanted to, there can be like, they feel like shit days and people just want the pain to go away. But what we find 
particularly in the psychological science, is that when you stop trying to get away from pain and you start moving towards what you love, like you move towards good things, not away from bad things, the bad things tend to drive fade away anyway. And so it's yeah. a cool, like yeah. intuitively, you've worked out what it took psychologists hundreds of years to, to decipher is that just make know. it about love You're and You're trying fun. to be like a tornado of good or whatever, tornado of joy. <laughs> Maybe there's no room in that tornado for... Maybe it's just like being a little bit more amused that you're a creature who's like chasing this like likely arbitrary goal, right? Like sports, the arts. I mean, it's not arbitrary because it matters that's, to you. That's to me, not, right? You kind of hit, hit on what, what it was when I was had that coaching moment where we were in the zone coaching. It was like, it's kind of the absurdity of some of it. Yeah. And the, like the, or pinch me moments and also even just they're like all right well let's see what we can work out here and rather than being stressed out by it just being almost curious about i wonder what it would be like if we solved this little riddle for you yeah. i wonder what it would be like if we got through this pain and it's just that curious fun instead yeah. of grit your teeth and get through yes exactly it's all and that just is the vocabulary like you said yeah for sure oh, i love it oh my gosh well, Alexi, this has been an amazing roller coaster ride, but worth every minute and every penny. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. For people who do want to track you down, obviously I've mentioned your Instagram. What's your handle? Alexi Pappas. There you Come go. A-L-E-X-I. Pappas like what? What's the saying? Potatoes in Spanish with an extra P in the I guess. <laughs> nice. All right, good. So Alexi Pappas on Instagram. You can also find her book, Bravey, on uh, online, Amazon, good bookstores, and the latest movie that's coming out, Not an Artist. Correct. I mean, is... we're, we're editing it, so you're going to just have to follow along as this trail continues. Even better. You just keep dropping little, like, one-minute trailers like Disney does every other day for their new shows that are three years away. Yes. Um, I'm hooked and I'll be watching. Yeah, breadcrumbs, that's it. Thank you so much, Alexia. Good luck with the rest of your amazing career. The journey's only just begun. Thank you so much.